0: In 1933, Mary Astor wrote in her diary, I did meet a man, professional, somewhat older and rather well-to-do. His first initial is G, and I fell like a ton of bricks, as only I can fall. Mary's diary, and that meeting, would prove central to a scandal that had the public eating up every salacious detail. And the most powerful people in Hollywood grappling with a choice. Do we close ranks around one of our own or throw Mary Astor to the wolves? Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to a special episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast. This is Close Up Mary Astor. Born on May 3, 1906, as Lucille Langhank, the one day Mary Astor was the daughter of schoolteachers who had ambition. Her mother Helen had dreamt of the stage. Her father Otto was originally from Germany, and it appears that his main dream was money. When their pretty daughter became a teenager, Otto realized that she could be their ticket to success. If they got her into the movies, Helen could live vicariously through her performances, and Otto, as her guardian, could pocket her earnings and control her career. In 1919, at her parents' urging, Lucille entered Motion Picture Magazine's Fame and Fortune Contest, the same contest that Clara Bow won not long after. Lucille didn't win, but she got a special runner-up notice, a new name, and more. We have already secured a five-year contract for Lucille Langhank with the famous Players Lasky Company, the magazine reported in their January 1921 issue. She is a remarkable-looking girl with a bright glow to her eyes and hair, and possesses grace, beauty, and photographic perfection. The star of her destiny points out great heights to her, and we will all soon hear much of her under the name of Mary Astor. Mary Astor had officially entered the business at just 14. Bit parts, shorts, a screen test directed by none other than Lillian Gish. Supporting roles in various productions followed, and by 1923, Mary and her parents were set up in Hollywood. She was busy working, though by no means had the 17-year-old had any kind of real break. Then, she was loaned out to Warner Brothers to do Beau Brummel. You are so goddamn beautiful, you make me feel faint, John Barrymore whispered into her ear during an early screen test for the film. He was in his 40s, still married to his second wife, the father to a toddler, and considered one of, if not the, greatest stage actor of his time. Mary was smitten, Jack Barrymore was, how shall I put this, very good at getting exactly what he wanted. It's clear here and now, in 2023, that the power dynamics were so, so skewed. That this grown-up man with a lifetime of experience used every tool he had at his disposal to have an affair with a girl whose frontal lobes had not yet fully formed. Love-bombing, self-deprecation, negging, withholding attention. He could have written a guidebook. Not only that, but as her stage parents' only child and meal ticket, Mary had been extremely sheltered and felt a lack of warmth in her own family. She was a prime target. And I'm not suggesting that her feelings weren't real, because it's clear from her later writings that she fell in love with Jack Barrymore and credited him, in a positive way, with shaping the woman she became. But, you know, I just generally frown upon adult men choosing teenagers to shape. But he did choose her and during the filming of Beau Brummel and beyond, they had an affair. Much of this was done under the guise of Jack tutoring Mary in private acting lessons, with the full support of her parents, who otherwise would never allow her to be alone in a room with a man. Outside of the relationship with Jack and Beau Brummel's March 1924 release, Mary's career was going extremely well. She signed with First National at the end of the year, and no matter what was going on in her personal life, they were not about to present their 18-year-old starlet as anything but the epitome of respectability. The tale of the old-fashioned girl, reads a headline in Picture Play's December 1925 edition. Inside, they paint young Mary as the most innocent young lady, totally by her own choice. They listed several reasons why, such as Mary has never seen the inside of a nightclub. She doesn't believe in petting parties. She never goes anywhere without her mother. And she can't be bothered with men under 30. Well, that one is true. She even name-dropped Jack in the interview when comparing young men —all they talk about is flasks on the hip, dancing, nightclubs, and petting parties, apparently— versus more interesting older men. I could talk for hours with a man like John Barrymore, but the young things, no. But don't get any ideas, the piece stresses, since Mary spends every night at home with her parents except the two nights a month that she and her mom go to the movies. That may have even been true. Maybe she did spend every evening with her parents, It's just that Jack Barrymore's so-called acting lessons happened in the afternoon. That she had to keep their relationship a secret bothered Jack, though, who proposed more than once and even suggested to her father, Otto, who officially had no idea that they were romantically involved, that he should wed Mary to better guide and protect her career. Otto said no, and so did Mary, knowing that it would upset her parents. After an extended pause from the movies to play Hamlet on stage, Jack was set to do The Sea Beast at Warner Brothers. He wanted Mary to play his leading lady, but First National wouldn't loan her out for the picture, agreeing instead that she could appear in his next film, Don Juan. In the meantime, she appeared in several high-profile productions, including Don Q, Son of Zorro, with Douglas Fairbanks, It was one of the top 10 films of 1925, according to the New York Times, and Doug, he was one of the biggest stars of the era. Also in the lead-up to appearing on the Wampus list, Mary played the lead in Scarlet Saint and The Pace That Thrills. While those are now lost, both contributed to the pretty solid consensus that when Mary Astor arrived on the list, she was indeed already a minor star. The Wampus also knew that Don Juan was about to be released in February 1926. During filming, Mary was surprised to find that Jack Barrymore's affections had been transferred to his co-star in The Sea Beast and Mary's fellow 1926 Wampus baby Dolores Costello. On set, Mary wrote later that he was "...feeling more than considerable guilt about me, so he picked on me for trifles of mistakes and scenes or walked away from me after a scene in apparent annoyance. Mostly he simply ignored me. The simple psychology of guilt. You are the one who is in the wrong. I, of course, would like to say to her, good riddance to 43-year-old garbage baby girl. But Mary was hurt. Took this hurt and evaluated her situation. She began to grapple with her parents' heavy involvement in her life. Not only did their influence stand in the way of any progress with Jack, their strict rules about what she did, who she saw, what she wore, how she acted, on screen and off, didn't gel with a young lady turning 20 during the jazz age. For the first time ever, Mary rebelled just a little bit. She started going out more, sans mother. She took up smoking and had the odd cocktail. Mary also got engaged to film producer Irving Asher, mainly, it seems, to piss off her anti-Semitic father. The fan magazines had to explain the match. Not because he was Jewish, but because Irving had a reputation that didn't go along with Mary's old-fashioned one. They hadn't yet heard about the smoking. He is a young studio official, that is, in office hours. Before nine and after 5.30, he is an utterly mad but quite personable young man who thunders down Hollywood streets in a fearful and high-powered motor, wrote Motion Picture Magazine in 1926. Irving makes quite a pleasing impression to the eye, particularly the feminine eye. Before meeting Mary, they said, he used to step around a great deal, and he was quite vocal about liking women with plenty of animation, a sense of humor, and an effective wardrobe. They concluded that even though Mary was mouse-like and had never once been around a man unchaperoned, ha, that Irving was into her. You can never tell just what gentlemen prefer harsh. The engagement was short-lived, but it was a step forward in Mary's general push towards independence. Irving, by the way, ended up marrying Wampus Baby star of 1923, Laura LaPlante, in 1934. They were together until his death in 1985. Mary didn't care too much for people thinking that she was mouse-like, and though most of her filmography veered towards adventurous period pieces and ingenue roles. By 1927, her on-screen persona was starting to catch up a little bit. Mary Astor has undergone a strange metamorphosis, it reads in Screenland's July issue that year. The demure Mary has turned vampire. Referring to her role in Two Arabian Nights, the magazine says, It marks her definite ascent into the ranks of the sex sorority, and her initial departure from the unsophisticated roles which made her famous in the movie world. A few months later, the same publication said, If you want to witness the transformation of Mary Astor, don't miss a place to go. And when I say transformation, that's just what I mean. Mary has hidden her own abundant tresses under a super smart short wavy wig, and the result is simply astounding. It leads Marion to do all sorts of things she never did before. Smoke, flirt, and get cast up on a desert island. The emancipation of the gentle Miss Astor is something to write poems about. Free verse, preferably. In 1928's Dressed to Kill, she finally got to play someone who at least seemed to have a real dark side. She wrote later that, It got it on the record, at least, that I could point a gun not in self-defense alone, that I could smile like a real villain smiles. Small irony, even in this picture I was pretending to be a hard-boiled gal. I had joined a gang of crooks to recover stolen bonds for which my boyfriend had gone to jail. But it was a breakthrough which would survive even the hiatus between silent pictures and sound. Sound, of course, was knocking down Hollywood's door. It wouldn't serve Mary Astor very well at first. In 1928, some major things happened. Mary got married to her first husband, and she left First National for Fox. But her marriage first. Kenneth Hawks was a film producer at Fox Studios and famed film director Howard Hawks's younger brother. Ken was ambitious, intellectual, kind, and totally devoted to Mary. However, as she wrote in her memoir, there was a sexual incompatibility between the couple. This was a time when, despite some major shifts in sexual freedom post-war, plenty of people were still not empowered or comfortable when speaking about sex and sexuality. And for some people, Marriage didn't change their ability or willingness to speak with honesty, advocate for their own needs, or express their feelings on what was widely seen as a taboo subject. Mary, who had had previous sexual relationships, most notably with Jack Barrymore, who was not shy about these things, was confused when her marital relations were so far from what she had expected. I mean, for the most part, they weren't having marital relations at all. And having been raised quite sheltered, living with her parents, in a house that she fully paid for, by the way, but legally owned only a third of, until she married, Mary didn't really have the vocabulary at the time to address the issue. I, of course, have no idea what the specifics of Ken's sexuality were, But whatever was, or more accurately, wasn't going on, Mary ended up looking elsewhere for a physical connection. She felt extremely guilty about all of this, all the more so when she ended up having an abortion as a result of the affair. The betrayal she perpetrated, the rejection she felt, the fact that had the situation been altogether different, she may have made a different choice, All of this was weighing heavily on Mary. Her mother Helen was the one to tell Ken, another instance of parental interference. Somehow, the marriage survived. So personally, things were in turmoil. But the moved fox seemed promising. They signed her for $3,750 a week, starred her in exciting jazzy pictures like Dry Martini, Romance of the Underworld, and 1929's The Woman from Hell. As I mentioned, though, sound was no longer on the horizon. It was here. There were four major technologies being used by the various studios to achieve sound films. Warner Brothers, as I discussed in my last episode, was using Vitaphone, though they would eventually develop their own in-house system. Mary's new studio, Fox, was using Movietone. None of these technologies were perfect, though they were improving picture by picture. Unfortunately for Mary, before Fox would put her in her first movie-tone film, they did a sound screen test with her, and she sounded awful. Nervous and out of her element speaking into a microphone, Mary's voice recorded as far too low. This was undoubtedly the equipment's fault, but rather than work with her like Warners did with Dolores Costello, Fox just didn't option her contract when the time came. Well, that's not entirely accurate. Fox offered to keep her on for half her previous salary, but Mary's father Otto, who was still acting as her manager, fought back and lost. Suddenly, in 1929, Mary was out of a job. This was bad news, but it was worse news for Otto and Helen. Since getting married, Ken had insisted on supporting Mary financially. All her earnings had been going into a separate account, managed by her father, and he was not above dipping into the pot. While she ended up being off-screen for the better part of a year, Mary didn't wait around in vain. She joined a stage production of a play called Among the Married, which did very well and demonstrated to several studio executives that her voice was just fine, thank you very much, Shortly after opening night, she signed with Paramount to do Ladies Who Love Brutes. Before filming commenced, and while the play was ongoing, while Mary's professional life was starting to feel back on track, everything else fell apart. Her husband Ken had ambitions to direct. He'd subbed in on masked emotions and helmed big time on his own. His next project was called Such Men Are Dangerous, a pre-code drama inspired by the real-life case of a banker who disappeared mid-flight over the English Channel. On January 2nd, 1930, Ken and his crew were filming off the coast of Santa Monica. They were using two Stinson Detroiter six-seater biplanes as camera mounts while filming a parachute jump sequence. Witnesses reported seeing the two planes clip wings causing them to spin into each other. The planes burst into flames and crashed into the ocean. Kenneth Hawks and the nine other men on board were dead. He was just 31, and Mary Astor was suddenly a 23-year-old widow. Mary was in a state of shock. Grief and guilt were intertwined. There was little time to process her feelings, as almost immediately, she had to try to deal with the practicalities of the mess she found herself in. After the 1929 stock market crash, Ken's finances were in a dismal state. No negligence could be found on the part of Fox, so even if she and the other widows had wanted some kind of compensation from the studio, it was impossible. And all the money Mary had earned over the near decade she had in films was controlled by her father and there was essentially nothing left. She had to get to work on Ladies Who love Brutes. Mary pushed herself in the weeks following Ken's death. Work was just about the only thing to distract her from her pain. The fan magazines tried their best to give the tragedy a silver lining spin. The talking screen said, On the set, she is a silent, pitiful figure until she steps in front of the camera. There, if the script requires that she smile, her old vivacity returns. No one watching and not knowing of her recent bereavement would guess at the inner heartache that her laughter conceals. Not only is she so good she can completely hide her pain, but, they argue, she can also use that pain to be even better. Her suffering has given her a new insight into the lives of others, and her years of experience before the camera enable her to convey that to her audience. PhotoPlay had a piece called Mary Carries On, published just a couple of months after the crash in their May issue. In it they say, You should see her today. Seemingly carefree, she even dares speak of Ken and the accident. But watch her on screen, for you will see a deep, Sincere, mature, Mary Astor, more beautiful than ever. And there is sadness, but bravery in her eyes. The messaging of these articles is clear. Mary's a trooper. She will put on a brave face and she will use her struggles to bring you, the audience, even better performances than before. Privately, though, ignoring her feelings was having horrible effects. It is said that if you don't take a break, your body will break for you. Mary was fainting in her dressing rooms, withdrawing from her support systems, drinking herself to sleep. And she found herself, after a total collapse mentally and physically, in the care of one Dr. Franklin Thorpe. Oh, Franklin, what can I say about Franklin First of all, let's get it out of the way that it is wholly inappropriate for a doctor to begin a relationship with a patient under their care, especially if that patient is in extreme mental or physical state, which Mary was. Next, let me tell you what that so-called care was. Mary wrote in her memoir that Franklin told her that she was suffering from malnutrition and incipient tuberculosis. Just a little note about that, that's a real clinical thing, it's a precursor to tuberculosis before any symptoms start, but Dr. Frank's diagnosis was sketchy as hell, and later, doctors could find no evidence that Mary had ever had any form of TB. His prescription was as follows. The treatment was to be rest and sun, a glass of milk every half hour, eight quarts a day, Mineral oil, complete bed rest, and sun on the roof. There were to be no visitors, only my maid Greta and himself. No phone calls, no cigarettes, and no liquor. So he got her tanked up on milk and isolated her completely. When she fell in love with Franklin, was it love or was it lactose intolerance? He could not have been any more different than Kenneth Hawkes? Ken may not have been, well, virile, but he was open-minded and interested in the world. He was calm and kind. Franklin was singular, obsessed with medicine, with that distasteful ego that some medical men get. He had a temper. Oh, and, well, Ken had in a prideful, patriarchal way, insisted upon paying for their whole life together, even when he was getting into debt, so I'm not saying it was a good idea. Franklin had plans for Mary's paychecks. He was handsome. I'll give him that. They married in June 1931. That year she was as busy as ever with seven releases. The following year, just four films, but one of those was Red Dust with Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. Big deal stuff. Mary wasn't as busy because she and Franklin were expecting a baby. She was thrilled. After baby Marilyn, a portmanteau of her parents' names, was born prematurely while they were on vacation in Hawaii, Franklin sent a telegram to their secretary. Baby girl, delivered June 15th. Please inform Mary's agent she will be ready to work in three weeks. At two weeks old, at Franklin's insistence, they took their teeny tiny preemie across the Pacific by boat. Within days of landing, Mary was back on a film set. She signed a contract with Warners, and it wasn't long before they were bragging about what a hard worker they had on their hands. Mary Astor plays in four successive films without a day's rest they declared in their 1933 press book for the film Convention City, Mary loves to keep busy. Uh Uh-huh, or she had a track record of throwing herself into work rather than face her own unhappiness, especially when money is a concern. And it was. Her parents had been bleeding her dry, and she finally had to cut them off for good. And that caused emotional distress, because for all of their interference and bullshit, they were her parents, after all things with Franklin kept getting worse and worse, and sometimes included violent quarrels. The only bright spots were her work and baby Marilyn, until she finally did take a vacation to New York and found another bright spot, George S. Kaufman. He was a playwright, a Pulitzer Prize winner, in his mid-thirties, funny, clever, charismatic, He was worlds away from dull, angry Franklin, and far sexier than Ken. George was also married. He and his wife Beatrice, an accomplished writer and editor, had an open relationship. Both enjoyed the intimate company of others, but remained partners. Within the boundaries of his marriage, George could date who he pleased, have sex, be extremely romantic. And if anyone wanted to have a relationship with Public Lover number 1, as his nickname crowned him, the expectation was, at least, that they would be relatively discreet about it. Writing it all down in your diary and then letting your husband steal that diary, not so discreet. She didn't let him steal it. But Mary could perhaps have done a better job of securing her private journal. You live and you learn, I guess. I'm getting ahead of myself a smidge. First of all, despite knowing deep down and being told outright that George wasn't in love with her, nor was he going to get a divorce, Mary fell head over heels for him. Their affair was on again, off again from the spring of 1933 to the winter of 1935. Mary told her husband of the affair in the autumn of 1934, and Franklin claimed that he didn't even care. He had affairs himself. But unbeknownst to Mary, he certainly did care, and he tried to get friends to intervene. When that didn't work, in February 1935, Franklin paid a visit to George. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. George agreed to break things off with Mary for good, with the understanding that if there was a divorce suit, he would not be named as another party. And actually, Franklin kept his word. He did file for divorce, but cited... Mental cruelty and incompatibility, not adultery. She repeatedly told me that she no longer cared for me, Franklin told the court. She said that she had no interest in my work, and that we had nothing in common. She criticized my earning power as compared to hers. Well, yeah, she didn't like you, my dude. Mary signed over custody of little Marilyn to Franklin Thorpe, with an informal agreement that Mary would have the little girl six months out of the year. Well, people didn't like that. Despite the fact that when Mary moved out of the family home, Marilyn came with her, the public wondered why on earth a mother would so willingly give up custody. Hollywood Magazine summed up the initial response in their November 1935 issue. The characters she's had to portray have been stuffy heroines or frozen meanies, so that when the papers played up her divorce, a lot of people went around with that I told you so expression on their faces. They say she's given up her baby, just like her, isn't it? They blamed the backlash on the public's inability to tell the difference between on-screen and off, but this was the same publication that said, in a feature that they called Orchids and Onions a couple of months earlier, to Mary Astor, an onion, for spoiling her comeback with bad publicity over her recent divorce, for failing to take the press into her confidence and defend herself, for being a reckless beauty. The comeback they were referring to was because, since the birth of Marilyn, despite working her ass off, Mary's star power had diminished. She was still busy, but usually playing leading lady roles in support of bigger stars like William Powell, Edward G. Robinson, and Warren William. In 1935, she was playing child star Jackie Cooper's mother in a movie called Dinky, which, come on, had to be embarrassing. Seemingly abandoning her small child without a care was not helping. But, of course, she hadn't. Before filing for divorce, Franklin had discovered Mary's substantial diary. She had been keeping a detailed record of her most private thoughts since 1928. Franklin read every word. He was enraged. In front of their three-year-old, Franklin confronted Mary, who was sick with the flu, about the contents of the diary, the details of her sex life, and her unfiltered musings about everyone, including him. He screamed at her, pushed her into chairs, and even berated their child. And shortly after, while Mary was still sick, as well as being completely broken down emotionally and mentally, Franklin had his lawyer present her with the agreement. She had to sign it, sign away her rights, or he would expose her diaries to the world. So she signed. After the initial eyebrows raised at the custody agreement, With a little help from pieces like the one in Hollywood Magazine, not the Onions one, where they explained how really Marilyn was with her mother, nobody panic, things calmed down a bit. Mary was able to refocus on her comeback, and in fact she was doing very well as a highly paid featured player. She signed with Columbia and had quite a bit slated for 1936. She was regaining her confidence. But the situation with Franklin was an untenable one, especially when he had physical custody of Marilyn, which, as per the agreement she signed under duress, he could take any time he pleased. I'm not going to go into detail, but Franklin was a violent man, and he felt, more emboldened than ever, to use physical punishments on the one he was supposed to care for the very most in the world. Mary could not sit back and let that happen to her daughter, even if it meant that all her secrets might be revealed. Her lawyer, Roland Rich Woolley, filed papers with the Los Angeles Superior Court, demanding that the custody agreement be reversed. His client had been blackmailed and coerced, thus her signature could not possibly be legally binding. Days later, Woolley added to the filing that he had evidence that Dr. Franklin Thorpe was a bigamist. Franklin countered with his own filing. He had documentation to prove that Mary Astor was an unfit mother. The documentation? Her diaries. Columbia loaned Mary out to Samuel Goldwyn, and she had just begun work on Doddsworth with Walter Houston and Ruth Chatterton when the dates for her new custody trial were set. Ruth A brilliant woman became a close friend and a huge supporter, sitting in the front row for almost every court session. It didn't take long before word of Franklin's so-called evidence against his ex-wife piqued the interest of the press. What could he mean when he said it proved her continuous, gross, immoral conduct? Rumors circulated widely and wildly. Nothing had even been shown in court when proceedings paused for some weeks so that production of *Dodsworth* could be completed. The recess allowed speculation to spread even further. Mary was called into Samuel Goldwyn's office. A consortium of Hollywood executives were there, including Harry Cohn, Jesse Lasky, and Jack Warner. MGM's Irving Thalberg acted as their mouthpiece in this clear attempt at intimidation they tried to convince Mary to stop her fight. If her diary was exposed, they believed it would surely embarrass the entire industry. They'd heard things about its contents. They'd seen things, too. A scorecard purportedly listing out all of the top Hollywood men that Mary had betted rating their skills. If this got out and, say, one of their leading hunks received too low a score, it would ruin his sex appeal. Of course... This was nonsense. The scorecard was a forgery, a clever bit of misdirection apparently from someone who suspected he was in the diary unfavorably, not as a lover, but as a cad, and who knew that there would be power in numbers, power in muddying the waters. Mary would not be deterred. Back in the courtroom, a real shit-slinging contest commenced. Franklin's position was that Mary was simply too slutty to be a good mother. Mary's position was that Franklin was a dictatorial prick. The newspapers ate up every detail with a spoon, especially anything and everything, even the fabricated, about her diary. Now dubbed the Lavender Diaries, or more frequently and famously the Purple Diaries, due to the color of ink she used, debate raged within the courtroom as to their admissibility as evidence. And outside of the courtroom, everybody wanted to read the entries. Franklin's lawyers released some excerpts to the press, and some unscrupulous reporters just made stuff up. Despite the fact that there was zero way to verify the legitimacy of the excerpts, the short entries were published in newspapers everywhere. And the day-by-day testimony was reported on, with a fervor, usually accompanied by the sexiest pictures of Mary that they could get their hands on. Charm Diary reveals secrets of Star's life, reads one headline. Despite the smashing attack on her morals, the exquisitely beautiful woman continued to hold her head high, flatly denying the implied indiscretions ranging from entertaining famous film Romeos in her bedroom to making a trip to Havana, under what Dr. Thorpe claims were quite non-platonic conditions. Another headline reads, Mary Astor's fervent diary worries Hollywood, wonders whose name will be mentioned next. One of the famous film Romeo's already mentioned? Jack Barrymore. By now 54 years old, suffering from the long-term effects of his alcohol abuse in a sanatorium by order of MGM. He was deemed too unwell to testify, though George Kaufman was subpoenaed. George managed to essentially run away, not wanting to be involved. If it sounds totally inappropriate that all of these ex-lovers should be called to testify in a custody hearing, of course you're right. All of this was inappropriate and irrelevant to the best interests of little Marilyn, which was the one thing that was supposed to be decided. Eventually, the judge agreed and essentially said that all this scandal-mongering would have to come to a halt. But what of the diary itself? Mary's own lawyer called for it to be put into evidence. This was a genius move and a win for Mary. Franklin's legal team had claimed to have possession of the two volumes of diary that were causing so much trouble. But they didn't many pages were missing, likely destroyed by Franklin himself if they mentioned him in a damning light. And there was the case of the forged, invented sections that simply didn't fit into the actual diary. A mutilated document could not be submitted into evidence unless Franklin's team showed their whole ass. Take that, dickheads! At the end of the trial, Mary Astor was awarded primary custody of Marilyn for nine months out of the year, Franklin Thorpe for three. The judge ordered that the diary, what there was of it, be sealed away. It was destroyed by court order in 1952, unread. But what had all this scandal and turmoil over the summer of 1936 done to Mary's reputation? to her career. Film exchanges have been flooded for days, the United Press said, as reported by the Exhibitor's Herald on August 22, 1936, by demands from theaters for anything with Aster in it. Hollywood has found that exhibitors don't do that unless the customers are speaking. They go on to say that Dodsworth release date had been brought up as Sam Goldman wanted to capitalize on this surprising new demand. Ovation for Mary Astor, reported Pitcher Play. Strangest exhibit of mob hysteria was the wild applause that greeted Mary Astor as she appeared on the screen at the preview of Dodsworth. Mary had won. Not only custody of her daughter, but the interest and support of the public. They were titillated by her entanglements, of course, but also saw that she faced all of the scandal with one honorable purpose in mind. In the tragic story behind Mary Astor's diary, Motion Picture magazine wrote, It took courage for Mary Astor to do what she has done. Courage that few women would have had to face the world and say, I don't care, I'll take the risks. Do with my career what you will, only give me back my baby. She's worth more than anything else in the world. Hollywood could have turned their back on Mary Astor. And probably would have, let's be honest, if the public hadn't responded so strongly to her in the aftermath of the custody hearing. Instead, they closed ranks. Not All of the fan magazines were immediately sympathetic. PhotoPlay's columnist, Ruth Waterbury, for example, said, I hate to seem, even by a word, to sit in judgment on any woman, but added that the case was tawdry and unjustly besmirches Hollywood. But overall, money talks. Dodsworth was a hit and went on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning one. And while her name was often mentioned in the same breath as the Purple Diaries, far from tarnishing her career, Mary Astor's best work was ahead of her. Probably her best-known film today is 1941's The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, and that same year she had a career high in The Great Lie, for which she won her Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Other films included The Palm Beach Story, 1952, Meet Me in St. Louis, 1944, Little Women in 1949. She continued to appear on screen until 1964, usually in pretty solid supporting roles. Not always ones she liked. She hated playing the mom in Little Women. But my point is, this should have destroyed her. Less scandalous revelations had destroyed those who came before her, but Mary Astor walked over the hot coals of gossip, of insinuation, of shaming, and kept on walking with her head held high. Life wasn't always easy, but is it ever? Mary struggled with alcohol use herself. She had two more less than successful marriages. Her third marriage was to a younger man, Manuel de Campo, and they had a son together. She also proved to be an excellent writer, perhaps the diary was practice, writing several novels and two autobiographies, which of course I used heavily in this episode, along with Joseph Egan's book The Purple Diaries, and as many contemporary newspaper sources as I could. Mary Astor passed away, aged 81, on September twenty-fifth, 1987. In an era where her ex-husband's threats to expose her secret life as a fully sexual person with flaws and desires seemed almost guaranteed to work in ruining her life, Mary Astor persevered. Who she slept with had zero bearing on her ability to be a wonderful parent, but many in the 1930s disagreed. Luckily, her strength and her fight captured the audience's attentions as much as the salacious details of her diary, and she was able to rise above. That's it for Close-Up Mary Astor, Wampus Baby Star of 1926. Thank you for listening. The Old Movie Lady Podcast will be back in a couple of weeks what? Going on vacation in the middle of 1926? Yes, I am. In the meantime, be sure to tell your friends. Share on your socials. Scream from the rooftops. Rate, review, follow. I'm on TikTok now, and it's all very frightening. You can find me there. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady. An unholy mess of a girl.